This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Due to a lightning strike at our building on Saturday, June 19th, the audio recording of this sermon has gaps in it. We hope to have that fixed by next week, so we apologize for the audio inconsistencies in this week's podcast sermon. It's Father's Day today. Happy Father's Day. It's also the longest day in the year. I, I don't think there's a connection, but uh, I, I guess that's up to you and your father. Uh, dads get to celebrate by, well, it's raining in Florida. Sometimes dads get to celebrate by cooking some dead animals on the grill and helping the family celebrate. But uh, I think it's somewhat comical that a guy is not a father. I did get a box yesterday of chocolate-covered fruit from a girl who has called me dad for years. Her dad died a few years ago, and way before that, he had left her family and uh, married someone else and abandoned her. And so as, a, as her youth pastor many years ago, she has called me dad ever since. I've been up at 1 o'clock in the morning outside the step, outside the girl's dorm, sitting. She was struggling with anger issues and well, I guess I partially earned that title. Listened to her when she was going through difficult times. Uh, I've got a young lady here at this church that has called me dad on numerous occasions as I have tried to fit in that role. But I am telling you, no one can fit the role like your actual dad. God has called you to a great calling. And today I want to talk about that calling. And I will tell you the truth I feel highly inadequate to do this task this morning. And I'm grateful on a God, uh, for a God who makes our inadequacies adequate for the occasion. And for that, uh, I am grateful. Uh, the nation's first Father's Day was celebrated on June 19, 1910 in the state of Washington State. However, it was 58 more years before it actually became nationwide by presidential decree. Uh, Mother's Day uh, was around for 58 years before Father's Day caught up. And men, we've been trying to catch up ever since, I think. Charles Francis Adams, son of U.S. President, dis diplomat to Great Britain, as was his father and his grandfather. He wrote one day in his journal, Went fishing with my son today. A day wasted. His son, Brooks, had written also in a little journey about, uh, in a journal about the same occasion. And these were his words. Went fishing with my father. The most wonderful day of my life. Dads, we, you've got to keep in perspective how your child views, how views what you do. Uh, many of you this morning will discount this. Well, this is Father's Day. It's Father's Day message. I'm a mother. Or I'm a girl. Or I'm a teenager. Or I'm not married yet, or, I'm, or this doesn't belong to me because uh, I'm, a, I'm a great-grandfather. I mean, my, my father, fathering days are over. And I went, oh, 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 not if you've still got children. Not if you're still an influence. Not if you can still be a father figure to someone else. 
my father died a couple of years ago, and uh, I have shared the story that for 25 years we had nothing to do with each other whatsoever. He, he, he couldn't get over my rebellious teenage years. Really. And uh, uh, we reestablished that relationship. I flew to Hawaii and spent a couple of weeks on his, on his houseboat where he lived, and we reestablished that relationship. And then sadly, the last couple of years in his life, he wanted nothing to do with me again. Uh, God had basically turned him over to his thought process, and, and uh, it, it was a sad experience. I am very grateful. I am extremely grateful for a few men who stepped into my life as a father figure and greatly influenced me. I'm greatly, uh, my mother, <laughs> you can't do anything to make your mom quit loving you. <laughs> There's just, that's why Mother's Day is a bigger day, no matter what you do. No matter what happened between dad and I, whether we talked to each other or didn't, he's still my father. And one of the reasons why I reestablished my relationship with him intentionally is because I want to live out that verse of Scripture. Honor your mother and your father that your days may be prolonged. And each had our own reasons for not connecting with each other or whatever they were. I was mad at him for being mad at me. Kind of stupid. We missed 25 years of relationship. So I went over there, and, and, and God wove our hearts back together as we set up, not having a TV or anything else. And uh, I played the guitar, he played harmonica, and we did every old hymn we could remember. And, and so we reestablished that. It is the design of Scripture that the dad be the house. When I went to seminary, they didn't train us that. They trained, uh, they trained us in the model that we followed for so many years, and that was, parents, drop your kids off at church. We'll equip them, we'll send them back home with you. And that's a broken model. It was a broken model way back when, and it's a broken model now. And in the past couple of years, we have said, also tell the grandparents, children, decide at church, it begins at home. Before, we will always be Robin and you will always be Batman in the spiritual faith development of your child. And what was Robin? Robin was the sidekick that made Batman look good. And we are going to be the sidekick that make you as parents look good. We're going to equip you. We're going to hand you the right tools when you need them so that you can be the hero. Because when they're 25 years old, they're not going to sit at our Thanksgiving table. They're going to sit at yours. I told this story a few years ago when I preached about family discipleship. About Ian. Ian uh, was a young man in my youth group, and he was a worship leader. He played guitar, and, he, and uh, I just knew God would call, call him into the ministry, and he didn't. <laughs> I'm glad it's not up to me to call people into the ministry, or I would have called several that God didn't call. And I was surprised that he called a few that he called. Uh, but Ian was getting ready to get married, and if you'll remember the red chair picture that I put up on the screen, in fact, I have guys that will ask me to come preach the red chair message. That's not what I called it, but that's what they, because they had heard me call, uh, talk about this, and so that's what they labeled this. Uh, Ian got ready to get married in, up in Alabama where he lived at the time. He came home and picked up this red chair out of the den and walked out the door, and Sue's mom said, Ian, where are you going with that red chair? And he goes, I'm taking it for our pictures. And Sue says, oh, please, please don't. That's the ugliest chair in this house. I've been trying to get rid of it for 10 years, and your father will not let me get rid of it. Please don't. And Ian closed the door and went on. Sue goes, oh, no, the pictures are going to be ruined. 
And so they go out on this boat dock out on this calm lake where the photographer's going to shoot all these pictures, and every picture had the red chair in it. Ian was sitting in the red chair. His fiancée was outside of it. She was in it. He was beside it. They were both behind it, holding hands. Every picture. And you scroll down the photographer's web, website, and you get down to the bottom, and it says, the, uh, the photographer says, now a word about the red chair. This was the red chair that every morning as Ian was walking to breakfast, that he would look to his left in the den, and there sat Doug, Ian's dad, reading Scripture. This was the chair that when Ian was nine years old, he didn't make it to breakfast. He made a left turn, walked over and stood there, and, and Doug looked up and said, what do you need, son? And, and Ian said, Daddy, I need Jesus in my life. And Doug slipped out of the red chair, and the two of them knelt, and Ian prayed to receive Christ. To Ian, that red chair represented the legacy of the faith of the model of chasing after Christ in Doug. And Ian wanted his new marriage. Now, Ian didn't take the red back and gave it back to Doug. But somewhere in Ian's home, there is a chair. And his children will watch Ian doing what Ian had watched his dad do for so many years. Where Ian established his relationship with Christ at the foot of that very chair. Oh God, give us more red chairs in our churches. But it wasn't the chair. It was his dad. Psalm 78 says these words. My people hear my instruction. Listen to what I say. I will declare wise sayings. I will speak mysteries from the past, things we have heard and known and that our fathers have passed down to us. We must not hide them from our children, but must tell a future generation the praises of the Lord, His might and His wonderful works He has performed. This is an unusual psalm that we find in the midst of the book of Psalms. Most psalms were a song to God. This song was written by Asaph, one of, uh, one of David's choir directors. And it was, a written, it was written to challenge God's people to remember this process of teaching the legacy of faith, not to break the chain. And there are two imperatives that we see in the middle of this. But before I look at these imperatives, I've just got to break here. And ask God my inadequacy and make his word adequate for us this morning. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would honor your word this morning, that you would challenge our hearts and even my heart, God, though I am not a father. Why the results turned out the way they did. And God, some of us have had great fathers as models, and some of us have a father wound that just haunts us. But God, as we sang this morning, your grace is sufficient for us. So God, take your word, apply it to our hearts, that we may walk out of here challenged by not what I say, but what your word has said. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There are two imperatives in this first verse. The first one is listen or hear. We, li we listen more than we hear. Parents, is that true, your kids? Did you hear me? Uh-huh. Well, apparently you, you did not listen to me. So in this first command, we're told, listen carefully. But the interesting thing is what comes along with it. It says, incline your ears. 
modern day translation. Parent, did you ever look at your child and say, look at me. <laughs> that's, this is a modern translation of that. Listen and look at me while I'm speaking to you. And that's what the psalmist is saying. Listen, hearken your, turn your ears, point them toward me and listen to what I'm about to tell you. I will declare wise sayings. I will speak mysteries from the past. When Jesus was speaking in parables and the people didn't understand what he was saying, he referred back to this verse in Psalms. He said, you want to know why they don't understand? Because I'm speaking mysteries that they can't comprehend. And he referred back to this verse. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have passed down to us. He's telling the middle generation that the things that were taught from the prior generation are to be taught to the next generation. And the Bible is full of examples where one generation dropped the ball. And it will, I'll read a few of those here in a little bit. We must not hide them from our children. We must not hide God's Word from our children. The Bible is not just a decoration sitting on the coffee table to make it look like your family is spiritual. Like the pastor came to visit a little lady one time, and she turned to her child and says, Oh, go get that book that Mommy loves to read. And he brought back the Sears catalog. <laughs> Only the old folks will laugh at that. The young people have no idea what a Sears catalog is. We must tell the funeral generations of the praises of the Lord. Each generation must teach their children about God. And this is a recurrent emphasis in the book of Deuteronomy. If believers do not teach their children about God, parents, biblically speaking, faith runs through families. There was no plan B. There is no plan B. And the church taking over that role was not God's plan. Fathers and scriptures, as the first man and first human father, Adam had no example to follow in his life except God the Father himself. Regrettably, he strayed from God's example, and ultimately he was left to deal with one of his sons murdering his other son. Adam was, has much to teach us today about God, and one of those is that the consequences of sin in our own life are great. And the necessity of absolute obedience to God's Word. Noah stands out as father, as among fathers in the Bible as a man who clung to God in spite of the wickedness all around him. And what could be more relevant today than a God who says, I don't care where culture is going, I don't, know, I don't care what law is passed, there are statutes that God has commanded us to and I will obey them whether it makes me popular or not for I do not look for the uh, applaud of men but I look for the affirmation from God he was humble and protective he took care of his family he bravely carried out a task that God had assigned to him though he did not understand any of it God what's rain you're going to cause a flood? I, I don't know what that is. But I will build this because you said to build it. Modern fathers may feel like they're in a thankless role, but God always is pleased with their devotion. Some fathers feel intimidated by the, the man that they're the son of. I mean, how, how could I ever walk in his steps? Isaac must have felt that way. Abraham was such an amazing, outstanding leader that Isaac could have just given up. Or he could have said, hey, you tried to kill me when I was a kid. 
And he could have been angry at his father, but instead, he was greatly inspired by his example. From his father Abraham, Isaac learned the valuable lesson of trusting God. And that made Isaac one of the most favored fathers in the Bible. If you've ever heard someone say, oh, he's just like his father, sometimes that's a compliment. Sometimes it's not. There have been a few times in my life where my wife has said, that's just like your dad, and it wasn't meant as a compliment. It was one of those things that she was calling out that that's probably a bad trait of my father, and I probably don't need to hang on to that too long. Uh, she hadn't said that lately. I think she just gave up. I'm not sure. Uh, but what an honor would it be to say, you're just like his, your father, and that is because I see the walk in Christ in you that I saw in your father. What an honor that would be. Jacob was a schemer who tried to work his way, uh, his own way instead of trusting God. With the help of his mother, Rebecca, he stole his brother Esau's birthright. Jacob later fathered 12 sons who in turn founded the 12 tribes of Israel. As a father, however, he had one issue, and that is he had a favorite son. I know none of you parents in here have a favorite child. Got awful quiet. But we find a favorite child here that ended up causing division among the brothers. In fact, got him sold into slavery, but God used that story, and in spite of his in spite of Jacob's frailties and inconsistencies, God worked through that story. And in spite of our, our disobedience, God will work his plan to come to pass. Moses was the father of two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. And he also served as a father figure to an entire Hebrew nation. I, I spoke a while ago about father figures. Wow, Moses was an incredible father figure to a lot of men as a nation. And uh, he, loved, he loved Israel, and uh, he helped discipline, provide for Israel. He led them on a 40-year journey to the promised land, and at times Moses seemed to be a larger-than-life character, but he was only a man. He shows today's father that overwhelming tasks can be achieved if we rely on and depend on God. Never in our nation's history have we needed men who may not be biological fathers, but are father figures to young men. Make sure when you retire that you re do not retire from influence. For that, you can carry the rest of your life. One of the great stories of struggle in the Bible concerns David, a special favorite of God. He, he trusted God to help him defeat the giant Goliath and put his faith in God as he was on the run from King Saul. And David was a man called, uh, as a man after God's own heart, but David sinned greatly. He repented and found forgiveness. His son Solomon went on to become one of Israel's greatest kings. And though he repented of sin, his other sins were spiritually a nightmare. This is what was written about in Scripture about just one of them. And I, I'm not going to read what we have on, on the others. One of them was Ahaz. Ahaz when, was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what, his, what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and he made his son pass through fire. He literally offered his son as a sacrifice, not to God. 
According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel, he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every, every green tree. The people who God said, go in, destroy them, run them out of the promised land. Back and we're going to do some of that because it looks appealing to me. Eli was a prophet. And Eli, though he may have been a good dad, he was a little bit permissive. He did not hold his sons to the fire. We find this. Now, Eli was very old. The tent of the meetings, and he said to them, Why do you do such things? Why do you do the, th the evil things that I hear from all the people? No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord had desired to put them to death and would not allow them to even hear. They listened, but they did not hear what their father was saying to them because God had already determined to judge them. Samuel was an equal failure, failure as Eli, and it came to about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judge over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain. They financially found it better to not follow in the ways of their father. But there was also some amazing fathers in Scripture. One was a man that you probably you may not have heard, Jonadab. Uh, he was a respected father whose children obeyed him, and he was first mentioned in 2 Kings 10 where he joined in hands with Jehu in destroying the wicked family of Ahab. Jehonadab was the son of Rechab, R-E-C-H-A-B, and his descendants were known as Rechabites. Jonadab gave his commands to his sons, and they obeyed him and his commands and were handed down to the next generation who did likewise. And not many fathers command such a following that third generation is still following what granddad said. Jeremiah used the, the, the obedience of this family and that father as an example to correct the people of Judah in Jeremiah 35. God blessed the Rechabites because of their obedience to their father as an eternal covenant. So what should a Christian father look like according to Scripture? What, what should a father look like? And dads, please don't misunderstand me. This is by no means a guilt trip of any kind. I want us all to look at Scripture and see what Scripture has to say. We're told that children are not only a father's responsibility, but they're also a father's privilege. Psalm 127.3 says, uh, declares, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is a man who fills his quiver with them. Children are a gift from God to be cherished and nurtured by fathers. And Christian fathers can help encourage a legacy of godliness, as Joshua declared years ago, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I had a young lady that 
that worked for me that was married to a guy who was a traveling minister and they had a dedication where they had uh, moved into a new home and they wanted to dedicate the, that home to raising godly children and to influence those who would walk into their home. They said, we want people to know that we're, we follow after God. So they took that verse and they wrote in a central part, there was a wall that came out like this and it was a step in and the, and the bedrooms were there. And so you had this one little focal wall right there off the living room. And they wrote that verse. They had it, an artist do it. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then they asked us to pray and write a verse of Scripture and sign that wall. That was their artwork. As they wanted to commit their home, and they wanted their children, who are now teenagers, they wanted their children to be able to look at that wall and know this is what we are. This is who we are. And this is what we do. There was a story, you may have heard this story many years ago. There was a young boy that said uh, his dad came home from work one day just to kind of exhausted and he said uh, with a timid voice and idolizing eyes, he looked at his father and he goes, Daddy, how much do you make an hour? Dad looked at him and said, Son, your mom doesn't even know that. He goes, How much do you make an hour? And he goes, hey, Just go on about whatever you're doing. Look, and don't bother me. But Daddy, tell me, please, how much do you make an hour? The boy insisted. The father finally given up, gave up and said, I make $25 an hour. Daddy, could you loan me $10? Why do you want $10? Because I've already got $15 and I would like to buy you for an hour. It's pretty sad when a young boy has to buy for all the things at work and all the other things of interest. Dads, do you come in from a busy week or a busy day, and you say, hey, I deserve, I deserve to be left alone, or I deserve to go off and do my own thing, and then I'll come back, and when you've got children at the house, you have no choice. Men, we, men, we have about 25,000 words, 25, 26,000 words that we use in a day. By the time we come home from work, we're out of words. We're done. But your spouse has about 35,000 words. You come home, she's barely broke into hers. She's ready. You want to know why when you, when you come in, she wants to talk to you? Because she's had five-year-old conversations all day long. I asked the wife of one of my former interns who's a pastor of a very successful church in Panama City one day, and I, I'd gone over there. I'd been preaching at his church, and so in the afternoon, I was playing with her two kids. And I, and I looked at her and I said, hey, do you, do you, because she has a college degree in, in marketing. And I said, uh, do you ever yearn for adult conversation? And she goes, oh my goodness, I used to be a master at Boggle, the game Boggle, roll the dice and, with letters on them and put words together. And she goes, I roll it now and I can't even find one. <laughs> because all of our conversations are with little people. Dad, when you come home, your wife needs to have adult conversation with you. But how, how much worse is it when your child has to say, Daddy, can I buy you for an hour so I can have an hour of your dedicated time? If we're to be the kind of fathers that God requires, it will take an intentional, invested time with our children. What does the Bible say to Christian fathers? The Bible tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Dad, you want to take your kids to heaven with you? Make sure that they're there where you are? 
Correct, rebuke, train in righteousness in your children. A Christian father's first and greatest responsibility is to acquaint his children with God through Scripture. Let me read that again. If you get nothing else that is said this morning, aside from Scripture, hang on to this. A Christian father's first and greatest responsibility is to acquaint his children with God through Scripture. The following is a compilation of some of the principles that we find from the Word of God concerning a father. A father walks not in the association with sinners. He refuses to allow ungodliness into the home. He refuses to have fellowship with unclean things. 2 Corinthians 6.17 says, Therefore come out among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing and I will welcome you. A father is not a stumbling block. A father delights in the word of God. Ian Bowling could tell you that as his, as his father Doug delighted in God's word. He delights in hearing the, God, hearing the Word of God. Dads, is it important to you? Do your children know it's important to you that we are in church hearing the Word of God and it's important we also fellowship together? He delights in the reading of God's Word and he delights in the assembling in the house of God. He delights in assembling it's sunday it's time to go to church this is awesome this is not a burden this is what we get to do well, i don't want to go today it's who a father should be like a tree planted he is like roots of a tree he has a foundation firmly doing the will of god and not wavering he bears fruit that glorifies the father the father is responsible for the spiritual welfare of the entire household. Do you remember the story where the disciples were in prison? They had been beaten. They had sores. They were in this dark prison, and they were just having a worship service. They weren't cleaned up. They didn't put their best clothes on. They were a mess, and they're in an unlit jail cell, and the Spirit of God came upon that place, and the, the doors the, the whole building shook and the doors flung open. The Roman soldier in, star, in charge of night watch came up and he saw the doors open and knew that the prisoners had escaped. He drew his sword to take his own life because it would be better for him to take his own life than it would have been to have suffered what the Romans would have put him through for losing prisoners. He said, hey, hold it. We're still here. Don't kill yourself. I would look, love to have seen him when he grabbed a candle and stuck in there and went couldn't believe it what prisoner in his right mind wouldn't have run when the doors fell open and he looked at him and said tell me what I got to do to be saved and he took them out bandaged their wounds cleaned them up took them to his house and the entire family came to know Christ As the father goes, so goes the family, is the design. He is responsible for the training up of children, Proverbs 22, 6. He is responsible for bringing his children to church out of Deuteronomy 31. He is responsible for leading his family to Christ, Mark 10. He abides in Christ for wisdom. He abides in Christ for guidance. And when the father of the home does this and is this person, he will be honored in the home by his wife and his children, and God will be honored and well-pleased by this man also.
this is, we have the Beatitudes that Jesus gave us, but somebody rewrote the Beatitudes and said this is the Beatitudes uh, for parents of children. And it's an anonymous author, but I ran across it and thought it was cute, so bear with me. You don't have to remember these. Blessed are the parents who make their peace with spilled milk and mud, for such is the kingdom of childhood. Blessed is the parent who engages not in the comparison of his child with others, for precious under each is the rhythm of his own growth. Blessed are the fathers and mothers who have learned laughter, for it is the music of a child's world. Blessed and wise are those parents who understand the goodness of time, for they make it not a sword that kills growth, but a shield to protect. Blessed and mature are they who, without anger, can say no, for comforting to the child is the security of firm decisions. Blessed is the gift of consistency, for it is the heart's ease in childhood. Blessed are they who accept the awkwardness of growth, for they are aware of the constant perilous choice between marred furnishings and damaged personalities. Blessed are the teachable, for knowledge brings understanding, and understanding brings love. Blessed are the men and women who in the midst of an unpromising world give love, for they bestow the greatest of all gifts to each other, to their children, in an ever-widening circle to their fellow men. Grandfathers. Deuteronomy 4, 8 through 9 tells us, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Once you get them out of the house, your responsibility is not over. And it brings me to ask, dads, in the model that we have seen in Scripture today, are you that man? Over the years, I have observed a variety of stumbling blocks for us being the kind of man God calls us to be, especially as the leader of a household. Men are fixers. If it's broke, we fix it. And if we can't, we embarrassingly call someone who can. We hate to admit that we can't fix something. But what if our family's broke? What if our family model is broke? Who do we call? And we don't always know how to fix it. But I'm telling you, God's playbook has a pretty good plan. And He tells us to lean on Him when we don't understand and depend on Him when we struggle. Sometimes, man, we over-compartmentalize. There is work and the things related to work. And we come home, and that's family. And the things related and relegated to family is often relegated to mom. And we're in charge of the sports end of it, not necessarily the other things. There's religion, and unfortunately, we have relegated that to the church. And then wonder why our kids leave the church when they graduate from high school and when they're grown. And we wonder, hey, what happened? When it comes to the things of God's Word, many men feel ill-equipped and do not want to show our ignorance of God's Word. And man, it's about time we looked at each other and go, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I felt like that all morning long. I'm, I, I, Dave Paxson, have felt like that all morning long. Uh, we don't want to show our ignorance our, our father may not have taught us. Our, our father may be the one who broke that, and we're, we're the exception. We've come back to church. Or, or perhaps our father was walked with God closer than we are, and we just decided not to be that close to him. We don't have time. 
I've had people tell me that they don't have time to come to church. I said, you will one of these days and it'll be too late. When it comes to the things of God, a father may not have taught us the things of God like, we, like he should have, and we're following a broken model, and, and the model is not ever another human being. It's another human being's walk with Christ as the model. Next, we're not very good at admitting that we don't know something or cannot do it. I can do it. We learned that at two. And sometimes, as a man, we're still saying, I can do it. And don't want to admit, I can't do it. Did you know God does His greatest work when we finally admit, I, you, we can't do this? I stood in front of a kitchen sink where Sharon was gone. I stood in front of my kitchen sink trying to figure out the, probably the lowest, toughest time in my life, ministry-wise. And I finally yelled out loud, God, I don't know how to do this. And God, in a clear voice, said, it's about time you admitted it. And God did a work that you cannot imagine when I finally got out of the way and let him do it. Jonathan came before King David with a message from God. He confronted David with a sin David thought was hidden. And his reaction? Deny it. Play it off. I'm king. Who do you think you are? I know you're my, my best friend, but who do you think you are coming in here and telling me that kind of stuff? But Jonathan was kind of sneaky the way he told it. He said, David, there's a man that had a huge ranch and he had all kinds of sheep and all kinds of cattle. And there was a man that lived across from him that had this one little sheep. And he would take it in his arms at night and he'd just take care of it, take it into his house. And, and that man, that wealthy man across the street was throwing a barbecue. So he came over and took that man's little lamb that he had raised in his home and he, and he killed it and served it as the barbecue. David was furious. David wanted to pronounce judgment on that man and he, he said, hey, that guy's going to get taken care of. Jonathan looked at me and said, David, it's you. You took an, another man's wife, and you had him killed trying to cover up the sin. David could have said, who are you? David could have denied it. David could have done a variety of reactions, but what did David do? David repented of his sin. It still cost his family dearly, but maybe that heart of repentance I have read of great revivals in the past who started when men got on their face before God and repented of where they were spiritually. But I have not heard of one in many, many years. What kind of walk do you have with God where you, the king, get on your face? Man, there was a whole nation of ungodly people. When a prophet came and said, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Simple message. No funny illustration, no story you know, to open it up, no, no three hymns and, and, and then the message, no invitation. It's just a declaration. And the king fell on his face and repented of the sins of the nation. And God held back his hand judgment why is it that 90 percent of people who seek marital counseling are women man it's because we're not very good at admitting we could be the problem cover up we hide we think that somehow we're less of a man i was having a 
conversation with a police officer talking about the last place that you can ever admit that you struggle with something is, is on the force because then all of a sudden they all turn on you. You're supposed to somehow be perfect when you're a police officer. And yet the very people that you work with who you're depending on to, to have your back, when you admit a frailty, will turn on you. Some of you work in that kind of sick environment where you are. It's, it's like we never got out of that middle school game, junior high game. Perhaps that's why David regained the title as a man after God's own heart when he died is because of his ability to repent. Let me go back to Psalm 78 right quick. A little past, a few verses past the passage that we looked at today, we almost find a, a passage that says, and this is why. I, I love the first part, the first few verses of says, and if you do this, here's why. And this is what it says so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's works, but keep His commands. Then they would not be like their fathers. We have a little clue in here as to who's being spoken to and why. Why is Asaph writing these words? It's because we have a generation whose fathers had not done the things that their fathers had told them. The chain was broken in there somewhere. And it says, but... uh, They would not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not loyal and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Well, that's what God calls us to. Feel a little overwhelming? You go, hey, how do I take that home? How do I take home what you just said from God's Word? How do I start doing that? Hey, how do I do that? My children are grown and they have kids. You're a grandfather. When your kids come over and say, hey, let's sit down for 10 minutes. Grandpa wants to tell you a story. And tell them about your journey in Christ. And tell them about what's, fa- what's it so important. Tell them about your parents and, and how they held God in such high esteem, had a relationship with them. Tell them your journey. Grandparents, if you have never told your grandchildren about how you came to Christ, you have missed it. Tell them your journey of faith. If you have children at home, every day for five to ten minutes, sit down and lead your family in worship. Are you serious? I got a three-year-old. Lead your family in worship. Make it age appropriate. But I got a three, nine year old. You got fun. Make it age appropriate. Lead the nine year old in how to lead. Make your home. I read these statistics once before, and I don't remember the exact statistics, but the amount. The, the percentage of Jewish children and Amish children who, when they grow up, do not leave the faith. And there was a great study as to why. And they finally determined, we realize why. is because the big celebrations of faith happened at home, not at the church. If you were here who graduated from high school, you would have noticed something different. And that is, this year, the church is not celebrating 
and the parents get to watch, but we have decided the parents are going to celebrate with the child, with their team, and the church just gets to watch. We're not doing this for them. The family is doing this, and we just get to participate and celebrate with the family. What do you do with what you've heard today? Here's what I know. God speaks to each of us where we are and calls where we are to where He wants us to be. And that may be a mom, that may be a teenager, that may be a nine-year-old, that may be a 70-year-old. Where are you and what would God speak into your heart on this day? Maybe something totally different. But two things. I t- One, dads, it's an awesome privilege and a gift from God that you are a dad. And two, lead your family. It may not be a red chair, but what is it that your child will look back at and remember you for? Oh, he was a great fisherman. He taught me how to do lots of things in the shop. I did a funeral yesterday for a Mrs. Hart that was a member of this church for many, many years. Healed her heart. And I asked them, because it was a small setting, I said, hey, describe your grandmother or your mother. Tell me the things. And you cannot believe the things that that lady had influenced her, her children and family about the things of faith and the things of family. And she was orphaned when she was seven, years, seven or eight years old. She knew what it was like to lose her family. She was orphaned in Nebraska in the middle of the Dust Bowl in the middle of a depression. I spend more on a Coke than she probably had in her hands in an entire month. And to hear them talk about their mother and grandmother and great-grandmother with the words that they used just... As a matter of fact, it was one of the funnest funerals I've done in a long time to talk about a member of my family and her graduation into heaven at 97 years old. God had honored her life, rich, long life. And I looked at that congregation and I said, okay, all these things that you've said about Mrs. Hart, every one of us are going to find ourselves lying in a place like this and there'll be gathered, there'll be family or friends who are gathered around. And, and, and if the preacher says, tell me what things come to your mind as you think of them, What are they going to say? Because we're writing that today. We're writing what they're going to say about us when we die today. Are you writing a good story? Will they talk about how important God's word was to you, moms, dads, grandparents? Will they talk about just observing your walk with God? Heavenly Father, thank you for truth in your word thank you that it I want to lay a guilt trip on anybody in here because that does not bring about change but God if your word is convicting may I get out of the way of what you want to do in this room God as men we need a generation who will get on our face and cry out to you that we cannot do this without you God, if revival comes out of that, so be it. Maybe this morning I believe that there are godly men trying their best. This morning I believe that there are some dads who you have reminded them that they have been majoring in the minors, working in, in making emphasis in places that just don't matter eternally. 
And God, how sad would it be one day when we find ourselves in glory around the foot of the cross and look around and our children are not there because we were the generation that broke the chain. God, call us to repent. Call us to seek and follow after you. Call us to be the men that you have described in your word that you demand that we be. And may when we die, may it be said, Dad, Granddad, great-granddad was a man who chased after God's heart. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We don't very often open the front of this church as a place of prayer, but I invite you, whatever God may say to you, if you want to come and just say, God, I need to pour my heart out to you right now. If you need to talk to me, I'll be down here. If you want to be a part of this church, I don't want to listen to that guy all the time, but I, I want to be a part of this church. I'll be here and I'd be, be happy to talk to you about the next steps for you to do that. If today you have said you've described a relationship that I don't have and I need to know how to come to know Christ, come, to, come down here and let me know that. Take me by the hand and tell me I need to know Christ. And I've got some people in this room that I will put you with and they can take you back to the hallway and they can say, hey, this is how you to know Christ just like Ian did when he knelt at his fa father's red chair at nine years old and said daddy I need Jesus and it takes an awareness that I need Jesus let's stay